How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. Welcome to Locked On NBA. Today, Kevin Pelton takes 10 minutes with me to talk about the end of the Raptors game and when is the right time to take the air out of the ball and ice a game. We kind of run through it numbers-wise. And then ESPN coach David Thorpe comes on the program. We talk about the development of players, the Royal Jelly, specifically Kemba Walker and C.J. McCollum are a large part of our conversations. We jump into the value of the Warriors and how they've done it. Talk a lot about that Spurs-Oklahoma City game as well. That's all coming up, and it's brought to you by our friends at SeatGeek. Go download the app for SeatGeek right now. You'll have the best and easiest way to get your tickets to any event, whether it's a concert, a theater show, or a game. And go to the settings tab and enter the promo code LOCKED. You will get $20 back after you make your first ticket purchase on SeatGeek. Thank you very much for all of Left 5 Stars. It makes a huge difference. And thanks to our sponsor, SeatGeek. Here's Kevin Pelton. Kevin Pelton is going to help me out first with my numbers question of the week. See, there's this terrible thing that happens to me. I get ideas, and I don't have enough brain power to actually come up with the answer. So I have to turn to really smart guys like ESPN's stats, breakdown, analysis guru, Kevin Pelton. Kevin, how are you? I'm good. Uh... All right, here's the impetus of my problem. So I'm rooting hard for the team that we like to refer to as the fighting Dwayne Casey's in our house. (laughs) And they have the most dreadful final five minutes of game seven. I'm watching with my 11-year-old daughter who says to me, Daddy, it doesn't seem like the fighting Dwayne Casey's are coached very well by Dwayne Casey right now. And I said, you know, I think you might be right. And I put her to bed, and I said, well, honey, the fighting Dwayne Casey's live for another day, but it sure wasn't pretty, and no, it wasn't very well coached. And then I started to think about it. Well, was it? Was it as bad as we think? So with five minutes left in the game Sunday night, they're up 10. They completely take the air out of the ball. They score two points before DeRozan goes to the free throw line with six seconds left. Yet they win. And only on one possession in the entire game did Indiana even have a chance to tie. And so I went and did a little math, and this is where I'm going to lead you, and then I need you to help me out. So my hypothesis going to the math was that maybe it wasn't as bad as they think. My thesis is that actually they got scared at how bad they were, and they didn't take enough air out of the ball. And let me tell you what I've come up with here, Okay. Okay. Some of these will be very basic to you. In average, teams average 2.04 possessions per minute in an NBA game. In the clutch, it's about the same. It's actually 2.05. Okay? The average points per possession is 1.03 in the NBA. In the clutch, it's actually higher. It's 1.076. So, in the final five minutes of a close game, the total possessions a team should expect to have are about 
and they should score about 11 points on average. Now that includes free throws and fast breaks and everything else. So if you're up 10 with five minutes left and you take the air completely out of the ball, you can get this thing down to seven or eight possessions. Isn't that the right move? As god-awful as it might look? Well, let's see here. Working through that, first off, I think one of the challenges of the clutch data that you see time and again is that it tends to include situations where teams are, you know, maybe they're down four with 20 seconds left and they're intentionally fouling. So that tends to pollute the data in a few ways. First off, those are way shorter possessions because of the fact that at that point you're trying to, you know, quicken the game uh, artificially by fouling. Those are more efficient possessions because you're probably fouling a guy who's a 75% or better free throw shooter, so you're averaging a lot of points per possession there. And then the third thing is it makes teams that tend to be down four instead of up four look worse in those situations than they really are. So I, I think that probably pace, in, if you look at neutral situations or at least take out that last 30 seconds, that sort of thing, it probably is slower in the last couple minutes uh, by itself because of the fact that there are you know, probably fewer fast break chances, things of that nature. So uh, you, you, the question is how much are you actually, how many possessions are you actually taking off by taking the air out of the ball? ball? And then how much is that actually affecting your chance of scoring? Because one thing that we do, another thing that we know is that the shot clock is, this coaches like to say this, the sixth defender where efficiency goes way, way down as you approach the end of the shot clock. All right, so let's walk through it because the other angle is Indiana, other than Paul George's offensive foul, had no fast break opportunities. Right. So the other angle is if I just go and take a 24-second shot clock violation, like, I mean, let's go extreme here. I'm up 10 with five minutes left, and I just take a 24-second shot clock violation on every possession. They have about eight possessions left. They'd have to score at a rate of 1.3 points per possession to beat me all in the half court. Yeah, and they're playing against your set defense. Yeah, I mean, you would probably win. Almost all the time, Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing we need to know with this situation, we've talked about this before, is like from the the losing coach's perspective, there's only so much you can do. And from the winning coach's perspective, probably whatever strategy you win, you choose, you're probably going to win because of the fact that you're up 10 with five minutes left. I mean, I pulled up the uh, unpredictable win probability here and uh, Toronto you know, was at 98% up 10 with 423 to go. So something has to go horribly wrong to lose the game no matter what. I, I mean, I think that I, I generally would rather just try to score because, the, you know, if it's not a bad shot. But uh, one of the things, I, I assume we were going to look a little more about how Toronto tends to get very ISO heavy late in games. All right. So we go specific to Toronto. Let, let's stay big picture here for a second. When, if ever is the right time to take the air out of the ball and just decide that it's imp- as important to use 20 seconds of the shot clock as it is to increase your scoring chances? I think you probably want to be a little bit, you know, a little bit more safer because, you know, basically what you're trying to do there is reduce the variability by first off the number of possessions 
and uh, then you know the fast break opportunities. But the other team has a chance to increase their variability by basically just shooting a bunch of threes. So you, I think you basically want to be have a large enough lead late enough that you know if the team comes down and makes you know two or three threes in a row, that doesn't put you in great danger. All right. Now, let me dig into the shot clock for a minute. If I, how much, I probably can find this data. You might have it off the top of your head. How much am I really, on a league average, if I shoot at six seconds in the shot clock instead of 12, hurting my, my team? I mean, it's a little tough to draw the exact. You know, the exact uh, figure for that because the fact that basically you're, ch- you're foregoing every opportunity up through 12, every opportunity up through 6, and over time those opportunities become limited. Okay, I, I hear you, but let's, let, let's play around with this for a second. and uh, I'm going to simplify the math, and then you're going to tell me I've simplified it too much. But if I shoot between at about 12 or 13, on average, uh, my shooting, my effective field goal percentage is a little under 50, league average. It's about 49.5, okay? Okay. If I move that down to between four and seven seconds on the shot clock, the league average drops to 46.6, only three percentage points. I would argue that I'm better off denying my the other team, an entire possession by, yeah, I'm hurting my chances by three percentage points per shot attempt, but I'm better off if I can take eight to 10 seconds on every possession over a course of, of five or 10 possessions, I'm being able to get my, the opponents down an entire possession. That's, that's yeah. a better scenario to take the air out of the ball. I think when people talk about taking the air of the ball, usually they're talking less about shooting with six on the shot clock and more about shooting with two, one or two on the shot clock, which is what we saw from Toronto last night. All right, let's go there. The average, this is really where you're more often not bailing yourself out, the average difference between those two is nine percentage points. Still might argue that you're better off taking away a possession than and having, I, don't know, I'm, I think my math, I mean, if you take, Five possessions, and you save yourself a possession. Probably comes out about even. Yeah, I mean, if you're taking six seconds off the clock each time, let's say so that it has to be four possessions, you know, for you to to eliminate one possession, four of your own possessions to eliminate one possible possession. Then, yeah, as long as the difference is less than point two five points per possession, you're coming out ahead. I guess. I mean, here's. Let's go, I mean, I don't want to overgeneralize and box you into a corner, but as I did this, I was stunned a little bit that taking out the air out of the ball actually makes a whole heck of a lot of sense, as awful as it is to watch. <laughs> well, I mean, I think here's, here's the thing, and this is maybe a more general point even than this, is you know, when that strategy goes wrong, you remember it. When that strategy goes right, well, it's just a thing that happened. The game was already over anyway. Right. I think there's a lot of situations like that where we tend to evaluate a strategy by, hey, what happens when it goes horribly wrong as opposed to what happens most of the time that we don't even notice. And what I noticed when I went back possession by possession is it's after the first two turnovers, it's almost as though Casey cracked. 
they then have a few quick possessions, and if Valanchunas doesn't keep them alive with a bunch of tips that lengthen them, they actually were then shortening the – they weren't shortening the game nearly as much after the first two turnovers when they probably should have stayed with that strategy. Yeah, just I, – I, I you know what I remember the last couple of possessions where they were shooting at the shot clock buzzer, basically, and getting very difficult contested shots. All right, so what was going to be your point about isolation before we put this one in the bank is just another thought-provoking waste of people's time. I mean, really interesting um, opportunity for people to think about the game differently. Yeah, that's what I meant. Well, I, you know, I tend to not be as anti-isolation as a lot of people, and I think that you know, the thing that gets forgotten sometimes is that the value of that is, first off, it's a lot easier in isolation to manage the clock to get to your point, because if you're running a pick and roll, you're kind of at, to some extent, at the defense's mercy of what they they give you, or especially if you're running more of a motion continuity type offense, you know, that shot, shot may present itself at 18 on the shot clock as opposed to, you know, you being able to wait to take it all the way down. So that's, that's one reason why coaches run isolations at the end of games. The other reason, I think, is because of the fact that those tend not to turn, end up in turnovers. So at the, you know, at the worst case scenario, you've got a chance to get back on defense. And there, you know, the correlation is not perfect between assist rate and turnover rate in clutch situations, but uh, Toronto has the third lowest, had during the regular season, the third lowest assist rate in clutch situations, better than only the Lakers. Uh, which is notable, and Detroit, which must be a lot of Reggie Jackson going one-on-one and maybe Andre Drummond putbacks. But they also had, you know, one of the five lowest turnover rates and uh, in the league, and that's uh, one reason why they were generally quite efficient offensively in clutch situations. Oh, that's really interesting. And if you don't turn it over, and if you don't turn it over, the thing that really happens is you're keeping them in the half court. And if we think about Indiana last year, Indiana averaged 0.89 points per half court possession. So now, I mean, if you can take away the fast break, you even means even more reason to take the air out of the ball. Right. All right, so what's our summation here? What's your summation? You're much smarter than I am. What's your summation? I mean, I, I mean you make some compelling points, I think, about uh, managing the shot clock. You know, the, the one thing is, obviously, the more possessions you you would also expect to be scoring. But so I, I still think you want to max, manage to maximize points per possession almost all the time instead of maximizing number of possessions because it's just changing the variability as, expect, as opposed to the expected value of each possession. But, uh, yeah, I think that uh, you, have, you have made me rethink this strategy a little bit. All right. Another time, longer time with Kevin Pelton. We'll certainly do it soon. Thank you, KP. All right. Always a pleasure. Special thanks to Kevin Pelton. Thought that was interesting. David Thorpe's going to join us for a very interesting conversation here coming up. But right now, let me remind you about our sponsor, SeatGeek. It's always the first place I go to look for tickets to a game, a concert, or even a play. Late spring, early summer, maybe Major League Baseball. My folks are actually heading out to New York, and so they want to go see Hamilton. So we were searching SeatGeek for Hamilton. Oh, my goodness gracious, the prices on that. But if they use the promo code LOCKED, 
they do get $20 back, which is a bigger deal if you're doing it on baseball games or something of that sort than if you're doing it on Hamilton. Let's not kid ourselves. The prices for Hamilton are insane. But SeatGeek was able to let my parents look at all of the prices available, all the tickets in one place, as they the same they would for Major League Baseball game for you or some playoff NBA playoff game you might be going to. And then they rank the seats. So while maybe that seat's a little more expensive, SeatGeek told me with their big green circle that that's a much better price. It's always up, honest, and up front. Unlike StubHub, there's no surprises on the back at checkout. And if you use the promo code LOCKED, you get $20 back as a rebate. So, free SeatGeek app. Go to the settings tab. Add the promo code LOCKED. SeatGeek sends you $20 back. Share your experience with me. Everybody else has told me what a great experience it's been. So, go to SeatGeek. Get the app. Use the promo code LOCKED, and you'll enjoy it. Here's David Thorpe. All right, thanks to Kevin Pelton for the numbers, Geek. Now let's get into some other different type of basketball. We'll do it with David Thorpe, ESPN. They call him Coach Thorpe. He does great work. You hear him with Zach all the time on their podcast, Executive Director of Pro Training Center in Clearwater, Florida, and longtime ESPN coverage on True Hoop Blog and all throughout. Uh, worked with many NBA players over the years and always has a great insight. David Thorpe, thank you very much for joining the Locked on NBA podcast. Thanks for having me, David. Good to talk to you today. All right. So I lead every podcast the same way. What do you believe in? I believe in love. I believe in marriage. I believe in fathers first. I believe in aggressive man-to-man defense. I believe in pressing. And I believe in getting two guys on the ball, three guys rotating. And I believe in don't guard any shooters if they can't shoot. So Andre Roberson is going to be left wide open like he was in the out-of-bounds timeout. Uh, absolutely night. right. I, I'm not sure that that was the play. I'm, I'm hoping, dear God, that was not the play call on Kevin Durant <laughs> unselfishly moved the ball to Andre Roberson the uh, last night. Why, well, why was even in the game? Uh, you know, that's, uh, that's a fair question too. Is you got to make sure you got shooters in at the end of games. You got to get shooters in. Well, uh, just we'll get into a bunch of other stuff. But what was your thought on the the, the insanity that ended that game last night? I was really happy to hear the TNT guys post game say what I was thinking. And keep in mind, David, I'm 51. I started playing basketball. Uh, I wouldn't call it seriously, but in 1974 is when I started. I played uh, for a very, very well known and terrific high school coach. Been coaching since 1987, won four national AAU championships. Uh, I'd helped NBA players, NBA teams for 20 years, whatever. And I've got guys all over the world that I watch every day, all day and night. I'm watching games, and I've never seen that before. And, and those guys who have as much experience as not more than me said the same thing. I've just never seen a push-off, and I believe that's why the referee didn't call it. It's just, you, 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 you know, refereeing is very much about anticipating, but also having discipline. I've wrestled a lot, too, in my, all my years. You anticipate something's going to happen, um, and, but you have the discipline to wait to make sure that you see it, which is the number one rule on referee. And really, you got to call what you see, not what you think or expect is going to happen. And I just don't think he had any clue that waiter would clear out before he passed the ball. And I believe, and I don't know that anything's official yet. I've been watching tape all day. That really should have been an offensive foul, not a violation. And, and I, I don't think it should have been shots awarded. Because you know how you, if you commit a foul before the ball is inbounded, you shoot. I think that's a player control foul. It should have just been Spurs ball out of bounds. That's my 
my analysis of the call. What do you think? That's exactly what Ken Maller said after the game. Mike Monroe, longtime San Antonio official, was the pool reporter that went to Ken Maller, and he said exactly that. He said it should have been an offensive foul, and he said, and we've never seen it before. Uh, yeah. And, and I think there's a level on my daily podcast. I talked about, mm-hmm. I mean, the Jazz fans are bitter. Literally, there was a specific call this year that cost them the playoffs. Like, a Jeff Withey slam dunk fouled three times against the Houston Rockets that they lost the game to the Rockets, right? Like, I mean, it's crazy. And so there's definitely a feeling in this town of, like, just being screwed and changing the year. But there's six calls that could have been made in the last 20 seconds of that game or 12 seconds, and I don't even know which one they're supposed to call. Manu steps on the line. Waiters jumps when he throws the inbound. Waiters fends off to get the inbound in. Durant's clearly fouled when he's trying to catch the ball. LaMarcus Aldridge is grabbed by Ibaka. Like, where is the line where you call these and don't call them? And that's what's so impossible about officiating this game, and I don't know the answer to how to make it better. Well... Some people think that there should be more review. I'm not a guy that, you know, I, I, I'm a big flow guy, and I don't like breaking the flow up. Uh, but I can tell you this. When, when you have a play happen when the clock's not even running, that's something that I think can be reviewable. And, and, and although we shouldn't be worried about legislating against a play that all of us have said have never happened before in human history that we're aware of, um, it, it, is, it is hard to call some things. Like the Durant being fouled, to me, was more of a loose ball Ibaka grabbing people, not, not so hard to see that, but I know they tend to let that go. Although Aldridge, Aldridge have the ball when, when Ibaka grabs his jersey. That's, I, I'm sorry, this is not wrestling. This isn't football. This is basketball. And in the case of, I mean, and, and yes, Marius, it looks like he stepped on the line. Uh, uh, that would have been a violation. The second time would have been technical. Remember in the old days, they used to do that on purpose all the time. They used to get that violation right away to reset you're, so you could set your defense and kind of maybe already get to see what the offense is doing. But that's all it would have been. That's, I, that didn't really affect the play. Waiters wasn't, wasn't throwing it. The clear out, to me, it needed, you know, it needed, it, they, they, you can't miss that. But to me, it's over. I like how, what Manu said. It's over and done with. They lost the game. It absolutely could change the series. The Spurs suddenly, I think they're, they're a significantly better team. I thought San Antonio played horrifically in, in many stretches of that game. And unless they continue to do that, which I will allow is possible, I wouldn't say it's plausible, but it's possible. In the particular, I thought Duncan looked as old as I've ever seen him look. And I thought Parker, who used to be one of the greatest of all time at attacking downhill, despite weighing 85 pounds and finishing, he didn't even try to take some shots where he had angles to get scoops up on the glass. He just didn't even try it. Uh, they looked old. That, that, to me, was a concern. But Kawhi also was bad. He's not old. Uh, I still don't think Oklahoma City has any clue what to do with LaMarcus. Uh, it, it, to me, LaMarcus has become, you know, a top five, top six, at least offensively maybe top three, top four player in the world, best big man in the world in terms of offensive stuff. He, they, they haven't solved him at all. They just played much harder and more aggressively. My guess is you'll see a, a sharper San Antonio team. Doesn't mean they'll win both games there, but uh, there, there is some pressure. You, you go down 2-1. You know, it's a snowball now. You, now the Thunder have a, a real chance to win the series if that happens. I mean, in the simplest sense, what's so interesting to me about the game is the Thunder were better than they were. And I just didn't think I'd see that. 
I thought the Thunder could well, win. Well, I thought it was because San Antonio played so bad. Like, here's an example, David. I, I mean, listen, Oklahoma played well. It's not like they played amazing. They played well. Kevin, I thought Kevin was really good. I thought Russell was, was somewhat under control for him. But there was a play third quarter yesterday where, you know, Oklahoma City's up maybe five or six or maybe four or five. And, and the Spurs had already tie, had tied and taken the lead at one point after coming back. And, Durant, and Duncan gets the rebound. And just completely goes brain dead that Russell Westbrook, who we knew was standing next to him, would try to make a play on the ball. Westbrook makes a play on the ball. He gets the ball and ends up, if you remember, he had that three in the corner where for some reason he dribbled it first, which is never a good idea before he shoot a three. Aldridge was guarding him, and he made the corner three at like the last couple of seconds of a shot clock. So that three-point swing in a game that was decided by one point, there was a few of those were just absolutely nothing. It looked like the Sixers were playing and not the Spurs. So that's why I say if the Spurs keep doing that, um, then they're in trouble. But my guess is you'll see a better game from them. And Oklahoma City, I thought, played well. I'm not sure they'll play that much better. And to me, they still didn't figure out Aldridge at all. And, that's, and I think Kawhi will play much better than what he did. I thought he was bad yesterday. Getting a early foul, he started getting aggressive defensively to the, to the middle of the third quarter, and then he started – picking it up, and, and uh, they just had a really bad start. Duncan was so bad in that first few minutes, missing layup after layup. That was a problem. How does, and this is this is the million-dollar question, frankly, if it was answerable, you know, the one person who had it would, would move forward in life. How does a collective group play as disengaged as Oklahoma City did in game one and then play as engaged as they did in game two? Okay, so this is just a theory that I have. I, I don't know for sure that I'm right, although I've been around a long time, as you know, trying to be smart about covering basketball and coaching basketball and whatever. I'm, I'm, always, I'm always a big believer that what happened in the previous series carries forward. It, it, it's a, a trace that stays with you in a sense. And I just saw Oklahoma City, it was so easy. Dallas is, when they lost Aaron Williams, like I thought that series would go seven just because Rick Carlisle was a genius and I would never say that he can't figure out ways to win. And I thought they would get in the Thunder's heads a little bit. And it turns out they did in game two and one. And then when D. Will went out, that was it for them. And they just, they, they knew they had no chance to win. And they fought Raymond Felton did the best he could, whatever. But they knew they were not winning the series without him. And so I thought Oklahoma City eased to that series win in five. And it, they just didn't elevate themselves on their own which is required sometimes to take being pushed in the mouth one time. And we've seen this throughout playoffs many, many times where you, you kind of a hangover from game one from the previous series. People think, David, uh, there's a fatigue factor because of the last series you played going to this one. But I often think it's just reverse. I often think that when you just don't have to play at a certain intensity and energy level in the previous series, you just don't manufacture it. Now, sometimes you can respond during a game. The problem with Oklahoma City in game one was they were down 30-10 to 10 before they knew it, and then it was a 30-point game. Well, that, that game's over, and that game was over more or less in the first quarter. And so the rest of it you can throw out. They just, you're not going to come back against the Spurs in that situation, and they, they got punched in the mouth, and they responded. I mean, the biggest thing yesterday for Oklahoma City was their, they, didn't, they didn't run back to shooters. They raced. They didn't show. They showed aggressively. They didn't bump. They bumped hard. They, they, they kind of ugly the game up a little bit, which is what they should have done. And I thought it knocked the Spurs out of their offensive sink for much of the game. Pop even talked about it some. They looked out of character. Oklahoma City deserves total credit for that. What I'm arguing is I think there's a, a response now that the Spurs have 
to be able to, to adjust to that new le level of intensity. They've dealt with it before. And I don't know that Oklahoma City has as many answers beyond just play harder. To me, they are more who they are and, and have been for some time. Going uh, big picture here for a second. A year ago yeah. or two years ago, you were talking with Henry Abbott, and you talked about your concept of magic – or what? Well, royal, royal jelly. Royal yeah. jelly. It's, um, yeah. And I've talked all year long about the aspect of the Warriors that I think has not been discussed enough, which is that most of their bench guys have been dismissed by someone who focused on their negatives. So Livingston got moved numerous times because he's a non-three-point shooting point guard who can only play in the mid-range. And Barbosa, Bar, yeah, Barbosa was a non-visionary yeah. uh, point guard right. who played with his head down. Spates, frankly, I still have a hard time watching. Uh, you know, Iguodala was was oft criticized in Philly, yeah. not only because they hate Santa Claus, but because of the fact that you know there he wasn't enough in his late game play. And here. Steve Kerr and that organization has done something what would be the equivalent to me of rubbing the royal jelly on all these players. So, David, you, you missed what you're saying is beautiful, and it's right in line with everything that I believe in uh, as a dad, as a coach for 30 years, but you left out the headline, right, which is look what they did to Steph Curry. I mean, I, I thought I might have been the biggest Steph Curry fan in the draft when I proposed that he was Steve Nash 2.0, and I wasn't close to what he's become. That is Royal Jelly personified. And for your listeners who don't really know what that means, I didn't make up the term Royal Jelly. I just am the one who applied it to basketball. It is what science has called the food that honeybees feed their larvae, who are genetically all the same, uh, the, the larvae, they just, they, they want to make the queens, which helps increase, you know, propagate the species without queens, can't lay eggs. Eggs are in a, in, a, in a hive. Queens are what lays the eggs and in charge of the colony. And they, they give their lar those larvae bigger space in the hive to grow. So think of it this way. They live in a mansion compared to a trailer and, uh, and they feed them much better food. And that's why it's called, they call that food royal jelly. And that's what takes these same genetically identical larvae into being queens. So what I, what I figured out a long time ago as a coach myself is uh, I could go as a high school coach and go recruit players that was illegal, and I didn't really have anything to offer. It's not like you can high school you can offer families money or places to move, whatever. All you can offer is just coach their kids as best as possible, and they had to see results from it. You had it. So I felt like the best thing I can do is just make my, make my kids as good as, I, as they can possibly be and believe in them and inspire them and make them think even beyond themselves. And what I've learned, David, is it actually works for NBA guys, too. I've built, I built businesses now on that subject. In fact, I'm about to branch over to soccer, uh, uh, both overseas and the Premier League, as well as probably the MLS here, where the same kind of concepts. I'm meeting with coaches and management executives and owners um, on the same kind of subjects. We, we have to take players – and, and really present them a much bigger vision. But then we got to feed them the royal jelly, right? we got to give them more room to grow, more room to fail. And this is where I think Curry has been so freed, as well as Clay Thompson, by the way. Clay Thompson, his first three years in the NBA, never cracked 15 in the PER, which isn't the end-all, be-all. But there's no great players that have a, a PER of 14 in the world. And he was one of them, and he wasn't a great player. But they believed in him. They gave them chances to fail. And they and they missed shots that, are, that some people think will be too quick on the clock or too tough. 
Uh, they've done such a phenomenal job. And uh, I think the Spurs have done the same thing. Kawhi Leonard, I've often argued, as he was the number 15 pick, David. Uh, I looked it up. I believe he did a 29.5 standing vert, okay, in Chicago pre-draft. He was, you know, they always say in the NBA, you have to have one great skill. That cat had no great skills. And by the way, he couldn't shoot either. Never shot. I think, I'm not sure he ever cracked 29% from three when he was in college, okay? He was a decent athlete. He was definitely very long. That was his best skill. And now he's probably first team all NBA and, and easily, you know, the best defensive wing player out there. They, they have created that. You remember when Pop said when he was a rookie, he's the future face of the franchise? Yep. That's Royal Jelly right there. That's getting, that's get, I guarantee you, Kawhi never thought about that. Guy was a, not even a lottery pick, and he's on the Spurs. For Pop to say that and think about who Pop is, unbelievably powerful stuff. And I think that that's why you have good teams tend to stay good and bad teams tend to stay bad. Management makes you know, good things and bad things happen, but also the right coaches help bring about those players to become the best players they can be. And they create a most space who Memphis was happy to get rid of and, and who now gets buckets everywhere on, without conscious, which is who he's, he's from my area in St. Pete. His high school coach plays for me in high school. And this is who Mo is. But you had to give him love and love him up and let him do what he does and, and not beat him up on it. And, and I think you're pulling on Livingston, who's just a phenomenal player now. But we could easily find his faults, and he would play five minutes a half, which is what he was doing you know, in some other places. So I have a belief that's very simple. It's probably somewhat stems off some of the same stuff. No one ever, and we can have, you can have fun with where you take this context, but no one ever does anything well the first time. And really, or very rarely, do they do things well the first time. And I think that parlays to the NBA, too. So when you look at, you know, the first time a guy's a rotation player, he's going to scuffle a little bit, he's better the second time. The first time he becomes a regular starter for a season, he's going to scuffle and he's better the second time. When Gordon Hayward in Utah became a go-to guy, he was miserable the first year, he's been much better the second and third time through. And, and there's some level, what's the process inside of that? where you've got to do things multiple times and have multiple experiences at things to be good at it in this league. So you're on an important point. So Malcolm Gladwell uh, wrote a book where he talked about needing 10,000 hours to be you know, an expert at something, and some people are criticizing that. I, I, I for one, believe it. Um, but I think you boil it down to this. I'll, I'll just give a simple example. So in my gym every offseason, you know, I may have seven NBA players on a court. I've had 15 on the court. We might have three on the court with some college kids or some guys in Europe. And last year I had a kid, a very good player from China here for a long time. Um, we, we do our ball handling drills. And, and, and they, these are maintenance drills or learning how to do things you haven't done before. Uh, we, as coaches, we applaud our players when they lose the ball. We yell at them when they don't. Literally, I'm not being – I'm not at all speaking hyperbole here. When you go as hard and as fast as you can – uh, and some of the drills, the drills that we, the drills that we do, and you lose the ball, we applaud. And when you don't, because until so you never lose the ball, we, that's when I yell. That's when I raise my voice a little bit. You can only get better by failing. You can only get better by pushing your boundaries. I've always, always believed that there is a formula. There is a, there's a time we've got to try to grow your game and live with the results, be they negative or positive. That's what practice is for. That's what preseason's for. That's what summers are for. And then once the season starts, we, we want to mostly do that which we own, not what we hope to own or covet one day. And, and the best coaches, in the case of, I uh, remember one time, Phil Jackson kept letting Trevor Reza shoot threes. And Henry Abbott asked me on, I don't know if it was video or radio back then, 
Henry said, why do you think Phil Jackson is letting Trevor shoot all these threes and he keeps missing? And I said, well, I don't, I don't know, but I can only guess that he recognizes for them to be world champs, he's got to be a three-point shooter. Well, you're not going to be a three-point shooter in the world championships, meaning the NBA Finals, if you're not a three-point shooter, you know, in mid-January. You've got to let him fail and just not make him feel any pressure from it. Just keep learning from it. And that was the year I think they beat Orlando in five games. He was great from three. That's kind of it, what you have to build culturally with that culture of not be afraid to improve your game. Your point, David, is great. You have to recognize that failure is a part of this. There's very few people on the planet that can just jump into something and master it right away. Those are the elite of the elites of the elites. And that's not to say they're always successful. They just pick it up faster. The rest of us have to slog through. I always call it embrace the grind. It's hard to be great at anything. You better embrace it. There's going to be lots of bumpy patches. This is what it's like if you want to taste success. If you want it to be average Joe, then just be average Joe. You're not going to be a champion if you're afraid to fail. I love that phrase, do what we own. You know, interesting, I'll, I'll share with you uh, uh, from something I've seen I thought was really interesting, and unfortunately we didn't get to see in the second year. Dante Exum, in his rookie year, got criticized throughout the year for not trying to do things on the floor. And I would go to practice and watch him try all of those things in practice, and they wouldn't work. And he then wouldn't try them on the floor because he didn't want to hurt the team. And I, the whole time, was watching this thinking, this is marvelous. He would go and try to, you know, there was a play I specifically, and Dante and I have talked about this a lot, where he specifically beat his guy, drove to the basket, got his shoulder turned on the guy, and and beat him. But he was so weak still that the minute he got bumped from behind, he couldn't finish. Right? Right, right. Then, so he didn't own it. Then he right. wouldn't do it in the game. But then once he got in the game, then in practice, he would try these things, and you could just see him. And that was the sad thing about the injury this year is in the first day of right. summer league, you saw he was suddenly strong enough to do these things and suddenly start doing it. But, you know, that's, that's a, I think that's a great example, at least of what popped into my mind. So let me talk about a player that mystifies me. There are, there are trends in this league. They're not steadfast rules, but there's trends. So wing guard players usually improve year two to year three, and by year four, 10,000 minutes are often who they are. Big guys, it's a little later progression. Kemba Walker, after 10,000 minutes, was shoot, like last year he shot 38%, 30% from three. I mean, I didn't even think, I, I seriously questioned whether he was a starter. I know he was scoring 18 points a game, but it was so inefficient. And he turns around and increases his shooting percentage five percentage points, his three-point shooting percentage seven percentage points, and he goes to 21 points a game. How does that happen fifth year in the league after already playing 10,000 minutes and having played three years in college? Well, it happened, number one, first and foremost, he was given the opportunity to continue to grow his game. And, and, and maybe even more importantly than that, internally, no one probably told him that, okay, this is who you are, and thank goodness for that. I, I've always rejected outright the notion that, as, that a player is who he is at any age. Now, obviously, as you get older, and I, I've been lucky enough to coach 38-year-old centers, former NBA guys that are still making – 600 grand a year in, in Spain, living on the beaches with their wife and three kids. Uh, and, and back to, and I'm speaking specifically, his name is Daniel Santiago. 
was famous from Puerto Rico, beat Team USA in a world championship, and and just one of the most wonderful men on the planet, amazing family. And uh, at, at late 30s, he was still working his butt off trying to get better at left-hand finishes and whatever, because it was getting paid to, to, to be good. Why wouldn't you want to continue to be good? But we were growing his game, even at that age. Obviously, you're limited in some areas, athletically and so forth. But it's it's a myth to think that you can't get better, especially as a shooter, which is such a mechanical thing. The challenge is, uh, as I talked about traces, we all kind of have, all of our stages in life, you know, we tend to bring some parts, some trace of that stage into our next life. The the more disciplined people are less affected by that, typically. Shooting is is an issue. LeBron James, for example, faded away a lot growing up, okay? I don't know if it's because he watched Jordan and Kobe, or I once talked to a high school coach of his who said he was just, when he was in high school still, he was just bored, which I totally believe. He was so much better than everybody that he had to come up with a new challenging thing to do, so he would fade away a lot. And that is kicking his rear end right now, where he had his worst shooting year since his rookie year. I've broken this down a lot on tape. Brian Windhorst, my buddy, and I talked. He just did a piece on him the other day. We got more probably stuff coming. He is really falling backwards, his head behind his head behind his hips. He's kicking his right leg up to, to counterbalance that. If you just if you lean backwards and then kick your right leg forwards, you would fall down. So that counterbalance keeps you from falling, but it's not balanced. You're not really in a imagine trying to, you know, shoot an arrow or a gun to a target while you're falling. why would you or throw a baseball from the mound while you're moving sideways or backwards? It it makes no sense. But that's what he's doing. So I think in most cases, first of all, there's not many people that really know how to teach shooting and then, and they, or, or they're afraid to get involved with the shooter. In Kemba's case, obviously, whoever helps him, wasn't me, whoever helps him continue to groove the good habits, the, those old traces want to come back, you've got to just fight it and rebuild your shot, just like a pitcher sometimes has to change his throwing motion, whether it's high school, college, or even the major sometimes because of injuries and so forth, the prevent injuries. It's just hard to do, but it can be done. And in Kemba's case, uh, obviously, he he is in the, he ignored anyone is saying you won't be able to do this, and and he's fantastic now. The other one that player I want to talk about that just amazed me this year was C.J. McCollum. Not because, yeah. well, first of all, he's the, he's a great royal jelly because I yeah. I love the draft. I do these breakdowns. I couldn't have missed him more because I watched every single moment of him as a point guard. And he, right. and he wasn't, he's not, he's right. just, he's a smaller shooting guard, which could be an issue at some point, obviously, you know, he's, he is a little small for that position, but, but what amazed me about him this year, first time he's done it as a starter, he got better as the year went on. Yeah. Well, I get you know, experience reference points. They all count. Uh, I don't, I don't know CJ. I wouldn't be surprised if he's watching a lot of tape. Uh, this is where, again, I, this is why I always say it's a coach's league, and people love to kill me on that. Uh, but this is why. They have given him permission, so I always say it, to be great. They've, they've run stuff for him. They've let him go. Uh, years ago, I used to argue with Kawhi, half the league, remember, he started game one for the Spurs as a rookie, as a 20-year-old rookie. He would not have started for at least half the league. Go look it up. Maybe, maybe even 20 teams, maybe even more, wouldn't have started. The number 15 pick, from San Diego State, who is more or less a power forward in college uh, for a good team. I mean, actually a very good team, but not an elite team. Uh, they would not have started him on their NBA team at small forward, knowing that he was going to fail some. 
Um, but, but instead, the Spurs wrapped him up with love and coached him up like crazy and all that. Portland's done the same thing with CJ. They've really let him grow into the player that, that he's become. And, and on the guard thing, I, I get away from not a point guard, not a two guard. I, I argue with the owners about this a lot. Uh, who they know I don't want to work for an NBA team for lots of different reasons. So they, they're not going to ever get, they're not, I'm not going to give them a song and dance hoping they'll hire me. It's just the opposite. I've already said no to them frequently. So now we can just talk fairly. And it's same with executives. And they get so caught up in point guard, point guard. I, I try to tell them, listen, the days of John Stockton are gone. There'll never be another guy like him anyway. Think of that as, as primary ball handler. All right, James Harden is the primary ball handler for the Rockets. You can make up any position you want if you want to label it, but I'm just giving you the attribute that describes the way he plays. CJ McCollum is a primary ball handler. They just employ two of them. Well, where, where is it written that you can't? In fact, as you know, David, I know you know very well, George Carl loved to do that for Denver. He was doing it, I think, before most teams did, playing two primary ball handlers. Uh, CJ's one, Terry Stotts of credit for recognizing that for us to be as good as we need to be, we got to have those two guys on the court. And I don't think he knew CJ could do this. It'd be unfair to guess that he did know. He probably suspected and gave him those chances. You, you can't, you're not going to keep getting better without the chance to do it. It's one thing I always argue, even against things like when Hollinger said the PER stat, when he told me, you know, it takes, it takes minutes out of the equation. I said, BS, it does. Because the guy that's getting five minutes a half has no chance to learn from his mistakes. He missed the shot, he gets yanked. He might have known I just got a little more arc on my shot or I got to get more balance. The starter who's getting 25, 35 minutes, he can make his adjustments. Uh, there's no minute-to-minute -minute correlation with the minutes are at least similar. Uh, and I, I look at a guy like Omri Caspi, one of my uh, guys that I really love helping with, helping and, and, and coaching. George Carl really gave him a chance to just play. Play through your mistakes. Figure it out, make your adjustments, and he's had back-to-back -back seasons of over 40% from three while being a very, very – at one point he was the number three defender in the NBA among small forwards behind LeBron and Kawhi. He dropped a little bit as the whole team just dropped out of the bottom. No one tried anywhere, so his efforts were wasted. But he's become a very good 3-and-D guy, and you wouldn't have thought he was either before George Collar ever coached him. Of course, he's fired, now we'll see what happens. So I'm a, I'm a big believer that once you get minutes and you, you have a chance to figure some stuff out, then we can really evaluate. If you can't figure stuff out with more minutes, well, now we know there's, some, there's something limiting you. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's not any good. Or it might be the system we're employing, which definitely hurts some players sometimes, or the coaching style. Right? Scott Scott isn't great at getting guys to play their best. It's just, that's just not who he is. Take a guy out of that system, put him somewhere else, you might see him prosper more. Uh, but I do believe CJ is in a position where he just was allowed to be great, and then and obviously he, he he's really terrific. It's interesting. There's, uh, you mentioned Sacramento, which makes me wonder what the opposite of Magic Jelly is, or, or Royal Jelly. Yeah, because yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, right, well, yeah, I don't think I don't think it's George. I think I think oh. bad cultures and bad franchises they tend to drag you down. Well, there was a, I can think of a player specifically who I was around a team once, and the player got traded. It was amazing to go to practice the next day because it wasn't until the moment that player got traded that I suddenly realized how much energy that player was taking from all the coaches and all the other players to, to be yeah. around. And the minute that right. player left, there was this like relief in every, in level of engagement. It's the opposite of the, of the Royal jelly. Well, uh, I contend that if, 
pick five, six, seven of the top coaches in the, in the, in the NBA to include maybe a great assistant like uh, Tori Messina and put them on this year's Minnesota team from day one. And I think they're a playoff team. Uh, Carl Anthony Towns is an otherworldly player. Wiggins, unbelievably talented. Uh, Sam Mitchell is that guy who thinks yelling and screaming and, and, and just being crazy uh, and angry and mean all the time, that's good for you. And that's how you get to be a better player. And on occasion, they would play great. And he would say, see, look. And well, meanwhile, they almost never played great because I thought of how Sam handled things, which is why I think the league better hold on tight because Thibodeau, while being angry, is far more brilliant as a teacher. He's a very special teacher. He will get guys to understand exactly where they need to be every millisecond of a possession on both ends of the court. Uh, you know, people think of him as a defensive guy, but Joakim Noah became defensive player of the year while being a good offensive player, first team all league center. Uh, let's look at what he did with Jimmy Butler, right? This guy has an impact on your overall game. I think Minnesota is, I, I, I put them with you. I think you guys have the two most talented teams before Exum went down. I thought you were the two most talented teams under 25 in the league. And, uh, I think in, in the case of Tom Thibodeau, he's going to really he's really going to help that mid team jump in a contention next year. When you think about what Tibbs did to uh, Luol Deng, imagine what he's going to do with Andrew Wiggins. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I talked to Luol about it. Luol is one of my one of my all time favorite guys. I was able to help for a long time. Uh, he, you know, Tibbs is a hard guy to play for, but all these players, with very few exceptions, want one thing, David. They want someone that's going to make them look good. Yep. And I don't mean that in any kind of superficial way. I mean, they want to play well. That's how they get paid. That's how you win games. That's how your life is better. Who doesn't want to be better at what they do? And I don't care if you're bagging groceries. You want to be better at it. You want to, you want to take pride in what you're doing. And Fibs helps you with that. He scripts things out. He, like I said, amazing communicator, especially on the defensive end. Very demanding. But, again, they can handle demanding if they're seeing the results. If it's when they're not seeing the results is when there's a problem. Well, you see the results with him. So, right, I think Andrew Wiggins either quits the game forever or becomes a, a perennial all-star under, under Coach Tibbs. It, the, an incredible concept is the players that didn't make the playoffs in the Western Conference. DeMarcus Cousins, yeah. Anthony Davis, Carl yeah. Anthony Towns, Andrew Wiggins, and then, you know, depending where you believe any of the Jazz players are, you know, Rudy Gobert is probably the best defensive center in the NBA still, and he didn't even, you know, right? So it's it, just think about where the West is going. All right, let's wrap this up with a fun little game I like to play, which I haven't done in a while, but my old friend uh, Tom Nasulki going back in the era of the NBA, and I used to do this all the time. He's, the, he's actually, for those who don't know Tom, he was the coach of the year in the ABA and the NBA. And he used to, wow. this used to be his favorite game when he wanted to talk about okay. it. He'd start debating how good players are. And he said, just do this. So I take Steph Curry off the Warriors and put him on each of the 29 other teams. How many of them are title favorites? I mean, the, the answer is probably five or six and maybe more. I, I, have, to, I have to go through it really slowly, but... Uh, I, I think he is – I don't think Golden State has any chance to win a championship without him, and they're very good, very good. The Spurs automatically jumped the top. Uh, OKC, you could argue, uh, Curry won, Westbrook two, Durant three. I'll take that lineup any day and let them take turns just like CJ and Damian do in Portland. Um, I, I obviously, you know, look at Cleveland. How good would Miami be with Steph Curry? Right. Yeah, that's a joke right there. By the way, you guys would be really, really good. And, and I, I don't want to miss this because 
I don't do a lot of podcasts, David. I just like you so much that I wanted to do it, so I'm glad you had me on. And I, I have a little the city you guys play in. I, I, love, I love everything about Salt Lake City in many, many ways. Um, I, I'm a huge Gobert fan. I wrote two years ago almost that I can envision Team USA when they finally lose, if they ever were to lose an Olympic game or a World Championship game, it'll be to a team that has Rudy Gobert at center. He's that kind of difference maker to me. Uh, and he's gotten, this was like maybe 18 months ago I wrote it, whatever, I tweeted it. Uh, this guy, uh, this guy has a chance to be such a dominating player. And that's why I'm glad you talked about big men developing a little later. They, they can for a lot of different reasons. He's still got some upside to grow into offensively and defensively. He's just a monster. So I'm a big fan. But yeah, you guys with him, with Steph Curry, I mean, I think you'd be a contender. I don't think you'd be the favorite, but. I'm pretty confident you'd be a, a pretty strong contender with Curry at the one. It's a different game because the Spurs are so great. We used to do it with Jordan all the time. And Jordan, the number was like 20. Like you put Jordan him is up- a joke. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, Jordan's 20, right? No, no, maybe. I'm not telling you it's not 20. It probably is. It's probably more like 8 to 10, 5 might have been conservative. But the Spurs with Steph Curry, they're, they're winning 75 right. games. Tony Parker is nowhere close to what he was. All right, so if nowhere we, close. If we ballpark it around 10, what's the number for LeBron? Probably about the same. Uh, you know, now, LeBron not shooting the three so well, I might drop it to seven or eight. Um, I, I, I think Cleveland's not created some things developmentally. I mean, structurally, where they've allowed his shooting to just evaporate. In the Miami, they were very, very good at working with him and stay, keeping him on task. They are a talented team. I mean, Kevin Love and Kyrie are, are phenomenal all-star talent. So, and Tristan Thompson's a huge fan of just what he, what he can do, especially with that – threesome offensively because when you start committing resources to help which you have to do against those three especially with two facilitator drivers like lebron and kyrie uh tristan just is you can't block him out it's like a defensive end against a bad offensive tackle you just can't stay in front of him uh he's relentless um but so i don't think he's quite the impact on every single team but this lebron still probably impacts seven or eight (laughs) including his old miami team all right and then what about durant you know, I'm, uh, I think he's amazing. But it's hard to guess with Durant because Russell dominates. The, I've watched every possession the last two games, maybe three times already uh, uh, this morning. Um, uh, just the ball's in Westbrook's hands so often. These other guys we're talking about are primary ball handlers. I realize the ball doesn't play the point, but he's a primary ball handler, as you know. Uh, Durant isn't. He's an amazing scorer, but I would, I, would, I would probably, again, without going through every team, I would probably drop it to maybe two or three. Like, I don't think, he, I don't think he's better than the Spurs for the Spurs than Kawhi is. So I, I'd probably lower it a little bit. What do you think? That's interesting. I, Durant, I'm mystified. I mean, I still think there's a point where is he going to finish his career being George Gervin? Is he going to finish his career being hmm. one of the great champions of all time? I, he's so marvelous. I, the best comment I heard about him – recently was it's too easy for him to take contested shots well because they're not really contested you know, because they, you, the same thing is for Lamarcus uh, I personally think that the Spurs won Lamarcus because he's the only guy that might be able to score on Draymond Green N- nobody can score on Draymond Green let's face it okay he just he, there's lots of reasons why which are on the podcast so the genius of his defense but um but LaMarcus might be able to because he shoots it like Rasheed Wallace, just better, and he's more aggressive and assertive. You can't get to it. So his, his contested mid-range shots, you know, it used to be growing up when a guy could make 18-footers on a high. As soon as you shot it, you'd yell, layup. 
Right. Well, Marcus does that no matter who's guarding him. Layup, it looks like Dirk in a sense. Uh, and so I think that, that Durant's in a little bit of a, bit of a same situation. The difference is Marcus is playing in a well-oiled, synchronized machine. Uh, though last night, oh, the Thunder did a good job of rattling the engine a little bit and kind of ruined that synchronicity. Uh, that is not the case in the Thunder. It's a very disjointed attack. It's phenomenal because there are two of the greatest offensive players. Westbrook's the most athletic point guard in the history of basketball globally. Um, in my in my assessment, um, it's just it's just not smooth. And so Durant is a harder guy to guess because I actually think he's good enough to be able to be a much better ball handler. In fact, if Wiggins could dribble like Durant, he he he's not as tall as Durant, but he's a lot more athletic. Uh, everyone, I mean, Wiggins is more like than everyone pretty much as a, as a wing. It would be much better. But I, I think that he'd be a little bit less impactful than uh, than LeBron and Curry because he's not a primary ball handler. David, I loved it. Great time. I got 12, 14 other things, but we'll do them some other day. There's so much to Look talk forward about to this it. game. I appreciate it. David Thorpe. You can follow him on Twitter at Coach Thorpe. Isn't that correct? Yes. That is correct, Coach Thorpe. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. Thank you very much for the time. Thanks for tuning in to Locked on NBA. And, of course, thanks to SeatGeek, you can sponsor the program as well. Just send me an email at dlock09 at gmail.com if you'd like to advertise on Locked On NBA. That's dlock09 at, at gmail.com. Use the promo code LOCKED and get your $20 rebate at SeatGeek once you get your first ticket purchase. Hi, you've reached the High Fashion Hotline. Hi, my family's going to a tailgate, and I want our style to stand out from the crowd. Just go to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's got all the latest fall styles. Plus, during Old Navy's colossal sale, you'll save up to 50% off store-wide. Did you say up to 50% off? I did, so don't sit on the sidelines. Old Navy has the perfect pants from 19 bucks, stylish dresses from 15 bucks, and comfy tees for the family from just 6 bucks. right now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. We're cheering for Old Navy. High Fashion, Old Navy. Valid 10-2 to 10-10. Select styles only.